0: Hello, this is Jimmy LaSalle, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Next up in our presidential series is John Quincy Adams, our sixth president. He is the first of our father-son combos, father being John Adams, our second president. John Quincy Adams laid the groundwork for much of what Monroe was able to accomplish with foreign policy as his secretary of state. With us, as usual, is jean Ann Zanakis, our resident history teacher. jean Ann, take it away.
1: So John Quincy Adams, he is, in my opinion, probably one of the most underrated, undervalued, underappreciated historical figures. You know, as president, he doesn't have all of these major accomplishments. He completed so many wonderful things while secretary of state. You know, like his father, He's one of those figures where his life before and after his presidency overshadows those four years. John Quincy Adams was born in 1767 in Massachusetts. He was a young child during the American Revolution, and when his father worked as a special envoy to various European countries, he was brought along with him, starting at the age of 10, I mean, 10 is young. John Quincy Adams accompanied his father to France, England, the Netherlands, Russia, Sweden, and Prussia. At the age of 14, he worked as a translator and personal secretary to the U.S. emissary to Russia, serving in Russia during the time of Catherine the Great, no less. The United States at that time was hoping to have Catherine the Great of Russia recognize the United States as an independent and sovereign country at the young age of 14 John Quincy Adams has a tremendous responsibility on his shoulders he had a front row seat to watch to learn from some of the greatest leaders in not only United States history but world history as a result of his travels and his own studies, he spoke eight languages, the most of any president. By the time he returned to the United States and began his studies at Harvard, he had already lived a lifetime compared to his professors, let alone his peers. I mean, imagine teaching a course or giving a lecture on politics, on history to someone who was there working side by side with Catherine the Great, with kings of Europe, and you're going to tell him, you're gonna teach him a thing or two. So, you know, imagine that. As Secretary of State, he had a number of accomplishments. All of the incredible foreign policy achievements that we discussed in our previous podcast for James Monroe, were all due in large part to John Quincy Adams. The Adams Onus Treaty, the United States gained the territory of Florida. He helped to set the border between the United States and British-controlled Canada. And of course, the Monroe Doctrine. During his presidency, Adams hoped to strengthen the relations and trade with the newly independent nations of Latin America. In the election of 1824, there's a very important quote that I know I always used in the classroom. One man won, meaning Adams. One man helped him win, meaning Henry Clay. And one stormed out of Washington, denouncing the entire fair as the corrupt bargain. And that person would be, of course, Andrew Jackson. The election of 1824 was so controversial that it held that title until the election of 2000 between Al Gore and George W. Bush. And I'm pretty sure time will show that the election of 2020 will overshadow the election of 2000. But, you know, time will tell. The election of 1824 is also sometimes referred to as the corrupt bargain. The era of good feelings had clearly come to an end. Unlike in 1820, when James Monroe ran unopposed, four different candidates were put up by the Democratic-Republicans in the election of 1824. So this political party is breaking apart. It has a number of different factions, sectionalism coming into play yet again. So who were the candidates? You have William Crawford, who was a Southerner and was Secretary of the Treasury under Monroe. You have John Adams, who was a Northerner from Massachusetts, Monroe's Secretary of State. You have Andrew Jackson from Tennessee, a military hero, a general, and Henry Clay, also a Westerner and was Speaker of the House in the House of Representatives. So here's where there was trouble. Jackson won the popular vote But none of the candidates had the majority of electoral college votes needed to become president. So when that happens, it goes to the House of Representatives. Henry Clay was the Speaker of the House and a candidate for president who had no chance of becoming president. He despised Jackson. He wasn't particularly fond of Adams, but he saw some similarities to Adams's plans for the country to the same plans he would have had as president. Clay got the votes for Adams. Adams became president. And when Adams made Henry Clay Secretary of State, it infuriated Jackson and Adams's vice president, John C. Calhoun. That position of Secretary of State had been seen as a springboard to the presidency. Many people, including Jackson, assumed that there had been some kind of a backroom deal between Adams and Clay, and the event was declared as the corrupt bargain. Jackson storms out of Washington and declares his revenge. And, of course, will eventually defeat Adams and he will not give Adams a second term as president. Around this time in history, we are starting to see calls for equality of suffrage. And let's be clear, equality of suffrage for white men only. Westward expansion and the increased availability of land weakened land-owning voting qualifications. Many. Upper class elites disliked the idea of the lower classes having an equal say. The argument was that those without property had just as much at stake as those with property. The fact that Jackson won the popular vote makes sense. The fact that Adams wins the election in the House should also make sense. Adams is an intellectual. He is from an elite family. He is not your average politician and he did not want to play the game of politics. That unwillingness to play the game led him to be a one-term president. Jackson is a supporter of the common man, a man of the people. So it makes sense that he were that he won the popular vote. At this time in history, we see a breakdown of the Democratic-Republican Party. Supporters of Adams were known as National Republicans. Jackson supporters were known as Democrats or Jacksonian Democrats. The legislative branch was filled with mostly supporters of Jackson, Calhoun, and Crawford. As a result, there is a tremendous amount of opposition to almost everything John Quincy Adams tried to do as president. The anger and frustration in Jackson over this election led him to come back to Washington with vengeance and win the election of 1828.
0: All right, there's a little teaser for Andrew Jackson, who's our next podcast. Let's let's find out what John Quincy Adams did accomplish, what he tried to accomplish, where he failed. Fill us in.
1: So as president, John Quincy Adams doesn't have much of a highlight reel. It's his years before and his years after the presidency that he is most remembered for. His goals as president were to focus on internal improvements. He felt that if the United States only continued to focus on issues such as farming, industry, commerce, or trade, the United States would soon become inferior to other countries. And he wasn't wrong in that respect. He wanted to see an increased focus on arts and literature He wanted to see the creation of a national observatory. His critics refer to this as a lighthouse in the sky. He wanted to establish a national university. He hoped to see internal improvements such as canals, railroad lines, um, additions to what was called the national road. Now, these things did happen to a certain extent. And of course, he wants to see scientific exploration of the Northwest. But as I said earlier, he was met with so much resistance in the legislative branch. When he is defeated in the election of 1828, he's of course upset, but he is eventually encouraged to run for a seat in the House of Representatives. Now, the people around him tried to talk him out of this. They said, you know, you are president of the United States. Now you're going to serve in the lower house of the legislative branch. But Adams ran, and he was elected to the House of Representatives in what was considered a landslide victory. Yet again, there was Adams who had lived a lifetime in comparison to that of his peers. Sitting next to other freshman senators was a diplomat, a former U.S. Senator, a former Secretary of State, and former President of the United States. As a member of the House of Representatives, he supported causes and bills that would allow for the internal improvements he had tried to make a reality as president. He worked tirelessly and for many years without any support from his peers to end the gag rule in the House of Representatives, which prevented any petition related to slavery. It was banned from being discussed on the floor of the House. He was despised by Southern representatives because Adams would use any chance possible to coax them into discussing or defending slavery and would always uh, make sure to bring petitions in support of abolition to the House floor before the gag rule could be reinstated that year. He opposed the annexation of territories and the Mexican-American War because he feared that the addition of new territories would upset the balance between free and slave states. Now, at this time in history, no one has a crystal ball, but looking back, he was right in that thinking. He was a hero to Northern abolitionists It was no surprise when Northern abolitionists asked John Quincy Adams to argue before the Supreme Court. Now, a lot of people don't know the story of the Amistad. Some people know the story of the Amistad because of that wonderful film that came out a few years ago. Well, more than a few years ago for me, but in my mind, it's a few years ago in 1841, John Quincy Adams represented the defense in the Supreme Court case, the United States versus Schooner Amistad. He was chosen by abolitionists to argue in support of the freedom of the African captives. For those of you who are unaware of the story of the Amistad, the story begins in 1839 when Portuguese slave hunters kidnapped a large number of people in what is today Sierra Leone and brought them to Cuba, which had become the center of the slave trade. At this point in history, many countries had made the international slave trade illegal, including the United States. Once in Cuba, two plantation owners purchased 53 of the African captives and sailed them on the Amistad towards the Caribbean. While on board, the Africans rebelled, killed the captain, forced the planters to sail the ship back to Africa. They didn't and the ship was captured off the coast of Long Island, New York by an American ship. Now, Keep in mind the time period. You would think that the planters would be arrested and the captives freed, but that's not what happened. The planters were released and the African captives were arrested and charged with murder. The murder charges were eventually dropped, but the status of the freedom of the Africans was called into question. Were they still owned by the planters? They had come from Cuba. So the Cuba, the Cuban government, who was controlled by Spain, claimed ownership. And the captain of the United States-owned ship that rescued the Amistad claimed he had a right to compensation because based on maritime laws... It had been dangerous to recapture the Amistad and he felt he was entitled to compensation. By the 1840s, the abolitionist movement in the northern part of the United States had really gained momentum. Northern abolitionists raised money to defend the African captives. A lower court ruled in favor of the freedom of of the captives, and the case was appealed and went to the Supreme Court. John Quincy Adams, who was in his 70s at this point, argued that not only was it a moral issue that the African captives be freed, it was a legal one, using the fact that the slave trade had been made illegal years ago the Supreme Court decided in a vote of 7 to 1 that the Africans were to be freed. Of the 53 people, 34 had survived, and they were brought back home to Africa with money raised once again by abolitionists because the federal government refused to pay the cost of what it would take to bring them back. John Quincy Adams died doing what he loved. He had a massive stroke while at his desk in the House of Representatives. And he died two days later on February 23rd, 1848, surrounded not only by his friends in the house, his loved ones, but his opponents. They may not have liked him, but they respected him. Joshua Bates wrote a discourse on the character, public service, and death of John Quincy Adams. It is a beautiful eulogy. And if you have the time I really recommend you reading it. It's not lengthy. It's an easy read. And it's very, very beautiful. And I want to just quote a little bit from his eulogy. Joshua Bates said, Know ye not, my hearers, that a great man is fallen? Yet as few as men of greatness, of character are, here and there, one in an age... Like lighthouses scattered along the seacoast to guide the bewildered mariner, our country has produced her full proportion, and John Quincy Adams was decidedly one of the number. No man ever served his country longer, more faithfully, with higher motives and a pure patriotism. History, I say, will do him justice." When fighting for years in the House of Representatives to secure an end to the gag rule in his fight for the abolition of slavery, John Quincy Adams often stood alone and bore the brunt of ridicule from his peers. He stood alone and continued to stand, even though it wasn't popular opinion at the time, but because he knew it was right. Old Man Eloquent, as he was called, was surrounded by political allies and opponents alike when he collapsed on the floor of the House of Representatives. While his opponents may have disagreed with him, they had tremendous respect for what he had done. History can only do a person justice if people know about them, and I hope that more people will take the time to learn about John Quincy Adams.
0: All right. That's some great information, and thank you for that. Just for our listeners, if you do want to go and read the whole eulogy for John Quincy Adams, if you go to wallbuilders.com, that's W-A-L-L-B-U-I-L-D-E-R-S.com, but if you do a Google search for John Quincy Adams eulogy, and you will see the link for wallbuilders there, that's the one where you can read it online. Thanks for listening to US History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Parlor. Visit our website ushistoryrepeated.com and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.